0: You see a nine-nine.
1: Olga Korbut won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a series showcasing the work of expert sports historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'm hosting the series, exploring how sport became a frontier in an era of superpower politics and intense international competition. There are more than 30 podcasts in our series now, which you can listen to on iTunes and Stitcher. They're curated by Laura Deal at the Wilson Centre in Washington. Please feel free to rate and review them. Follow us on Twitter at CWIHP and hashtag Cold War Sport and thanks to our regular listeners for their positive feedback. Boycotts of the Olympics are usually associated with Moscow 1980 and Los Angeles in 84, but my next guest, Michelle Sykes, has been studying the anti-apartheid boycotts. They started in Mexico 68 and lasted until the walkout by the African nations at Montreal in 1976. Michelle's a former long-distance runner now teaching at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. Michelle, people talk about perspectives on the Olympics, and and you you look at the Olympics through the African perspective mostly, don't you? Mostly uh, racial bars of mixed Olympics.
0: Exactly. The African-led boycotts of 1968, 1972, and 1976, and the... Only one of those three in which the boycott actually occurred, where the walkout took place, was in the 76 Montreal Olympic Games. But what's interesting is that it has a longer history, starting with uh, boycott threats made before the 1968 Games over the participation of a South African Olympic team. And that also was followed in 1972 by another round of threats led by African nations against the presence of Rhodesia. Uh, as it was called then at the 1972 games and both of both of which were successful boycotts in the sense that it led to South Africa's withdrawal from the Mexico City games in 68 and Rhodesia's withdrawal from the 72 games as well
1: these boycotts were prompted by apartheid that was a system that had been in place since 1948 who leads the anti apartheid movement
0: the leadership of the anti-apartheid movement in sport was um, begun, interestingly enough, by South Africans in exile to a large degree. They they were activists within South Africa in the 50s, and as their activism was taking place, it attracted the attention of the South African government, which summarily, uh, in the case of one Dennis Brutus, He was beaten. He was imprisoned in Robben Island and uh, then went into exile from South Africa and London and then the United States. And it was men like him who took who found in sport a reason for uh, combating apartheid more broadly, given South Africa's ardent um, enjoyment of, of sport and he was one of he was a key player in in starting the movement to use sport as a form uh or as a weapon against the apartheid regime.
1: Did that spread quickly to become an international campaign, or was it in its uh, infancy, uh, restricted to the African nations?
0: The anti-apartheid issue was one that newly independent African nations picked up on because. It was it was something that was shared across the the continent in terms of common colonial and racial oppression during the the previous decades, but also the anti-apartheid movement was one that um, that they could converge uh, together and and form this unified block that successfully took these different stands at these different Olympic games and. I think it is, it is worth noting that they um, stood together as a, as a um, largely unified 32 nation unit in 1976 when the boycott, the walkout actually took place. There were only two nations of the 30, 32 that could have walked out that chose not to walk out. Ivory Coast and Senegal. The rest decided actually to enforce this and that meant all of their athletes losing the chance to participate, it came at a cost. Particularly in uh, in the case of, of the long-term development of, for instance, a nation like Kenya, my research has shown that the boycotts of both the 76 games, which were then followed by boycotting in solidarity with the American-led boycott in 1980, that two, two Olympic cycles that were missed in the case of Kenya, for instance, was really harmful for both the fans and the athletes and the general momentum that Kenya had, had begun in 1968 and 72 as their emergence onto the world stage as runners was happening then the boycott sort of slowed that down.
1: It disrupted their development of of an emerging sporting nation.
0: Exactly and so it took that's why when you see them returning to uh, Olympic competition in 1984 it there there is very little Kenyan runner presence in particular. It's it's not until 88 and 92 that once again we start to see um, the dominance of East African runners that we could have seen throughout the 70s and early 80s but for the boycott.
1: When the African nation started to organise to boycott the Olympics how did the IOC respond to that? Did it accept what they were saying because the South Africans were fairly clear about where they stood on sport. No mixed teams.
0: When the IOC, going back to 1968, decided to admit, readmit actually, South Africa to the New Mexico City games, remember this came in the wake of 1964 when South Africa had not been allowed to participate in those games on the basis of apartheid laws within the country. In 1968, the IOC changed its mind and brought South Africa back for a number of different reasons, one being promises of bringing a a mixed team traveling under the same flag, wearing the same uniforms, living together, and the only caveat to that was that the South African team would not be chosen by integrated trials within South Africa. The team was to be chosen according to a mixed mixed race committees after segregated trials had taken place on in South African soil. That's all before the 1968 Olympics. And African nations were outraged at the fact that South Africa was to be allowed back into the Olympic family given that even though some concession had been made in terms of the, the racial composition of the South African Olympic team, if it were to have competed at those games, it still didn't change the way the team was selected at home, nor did it change the welter of apartheid law that was in place and regulated all manner of, of aspects of people's lives. And so that precipitated the movement against the IOC, by the African nations and the demand that they refuse entry to the South African team, which then, interestingly, received the support of Caribbean nations, Islamic nations, and in particular, the Soviet Union, supportive of this anti-apartheid boycott.
1: So this is where a Cold War dimension comes into it,
0: precisely. And so it was a political and a strategic decision on the part of the Soviet Union to back the black African states, whereas if you look at the United States Olympic Committee at the time, they remain uh, strikingly non-committal in the entire in that affair. Though it should be noted that there were individuals galvanizing people, African Americans in the United States to boycott this 1968 games at the time in partial solidarity with with the South African anti apartheid cause but also to combat racism inside of America's borders as well
1: do you think the IOC really understood the issues what's the makeup of the IOC at that time are they all out of touch elderly men
0: in 1968, the IOC was entirely male, mostly white, wealthy, most elected for life. Until 1966, IOC members were elected for life. It was only after 1966 that they decided to change the rules to uh, giving members election until they were turned 72. But at that point in 68, it was broken. It was the membership... I think, breaks down across 71 members into 40 of whom were European, 16 were American, Africa had seven members, Oceania had two, Uh, and they were all, broadly speaking, from the aristocracy or upper classes. And it was basically a very disproportionate uh, weighting system in terms of number of votes and and number of of states at the time. So established members of the IOC were often uh, happy to agree with then President Avery Brundage, who saw politics and sport as two entirely separate entities. And he strongly led the 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 crusade to keep South Africa in the in the games. And he was ultimately, over, his views were ultimately rejected and overturned by the South, the African nations-led boycott. So Avery Brundage was completely unprepared to take anti-apartheid action against South Africa. In fact, he uh, would have much preferred to see South Africa back into the Olympic folds. For him... Even a cause as, as um, some might say clear-cut uh, clear as, the, as the anti-apartheid cause w- was of no ma- matter whatsoever. It was part of politics, and therefore he believed uh, should have no place in the domain of sport. And therefore, he wished to see South Africa's presence in Mexico City, just as he wished to see Rhodesia participate in 1972 in, in the Munich games.
1: Your research is now taking us into, well, gender issues, really, if there are no women on the IOC, into class issues, really, because if everybody's a member of the uh, European aristocracy, that's hardly representative, and also into human rights territory, uh, because if you discriminate against somebody on the grounds of the colour of the skin and exclude them... That's not really very fair, is it? That's that's not really in line with the Olympic ideal, is it?
0: Mm, no, and that was one of the major objections to allowing South Africa to continue to send all white teams to the Olympic Games when the founding fundamental first rule of the Olympics is that there will be no discrimination according to race as well as creed and politics, interestingly, in the Olympic games. And when ultimately the boycotts uh, uh, caused that rule to be enforced, in the case of South Africa in 1960, ultimately South Africa was ejected entirely from the Olympic movement in 1970 in in, in withdrawing Rhodesia's invitation in 1972, these were the these actions were buttressed by the way the constitution and the codes of not just the olympics but also other international federations by that point around the world that ostensibly stood for having no discrimination according to race those were this was a powerful reason why allowing apartheid uh, South Africa to send teams according to its racial rigidities was so unacceptable to the um, to the to African nations and other nations around the world.
1: Would you say, in Cold War terms, that uh, the Soviet Union backed the right horse?
0: I would. I would. I would say the Soviet Union was was on the side so- absolutely made the right call. Whatever their motivations were for backing the newly independent African nations around the anti-apartheid issue, the Soviets were the ones giving their support to to the anti-apartheid cause.
1: Would you say that the African nations boycotts of those games actually achieved anything? Did it end the apartheid regime? That's
0: uh, the, it's a very thorny question of did the African. Well, it's a no,
1: isn't it? It didn't, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. it didn't
0: no, end the it regime. Didn't, it did not. No. The boycott did not ultimately trigger the dismantling of apartheid. However, it had an impact on the international sports scene, on the Olympics, and. The, and, and athletes around the world coming into contact with South Africans or South Africans themselves not getting to travel and to compete at the highest level of their sport. It ultimately had an impact inside of South Africa to different degrees according to different sports, but the international shunning over time of South Africa's sports teams eventually led to growing discomfort with, within the, the minds of officials and people within South Africa who tried in various different alternatives and strategies to regain their place in the international sports community. So I would argue that the anti-apartheid boycott movement Absolutely, had an impact at the international level, and had some impact on anti-apartheid sport within the country, and was one of a panoply of different movements of resistance to the apartheid regime that ultimately led to or contributed to the downfall of the regime.
1: The walkout at the Montreal Olympics was really actually quite dramatic, wasn't it? It was a, a it was like a, a union strike. It was uh they they basically just walked out and went to the airport didn't they did events like that take the world press by uh surprise
0: yes absolutely the 1976 non-participation walkout was a a huge shock to the world press to the organizers it actually came in the 11th hour the demands were being negotiated right up until the very start of the opening ceremonies and by that point african nations had already sent most of their teams were in place in montreal preparing getting ready for the Olympics at least a couple weeks beforehand. And then when the decision was made, they couldn't, many of them, just turn around the next day and leave. So this left a number of athletes in Montreal with with nothing, with no games to compete in. It was a lightning strike. It was deeply upsetting and difficult for the athletes involved, and many of whom didn't under, didn't agree with the with the decision but ultimately it's an example of the top-down hierarchical nature of sport in which decision makers at the top can control the movements and access of athletes to symbolic and and materially important events like the Olympic Games and when the decision was made to boycott those games it no matter what any individual athlete may have thought it led to their, their, the end of their Olympic dreams.
1: But it's also a sign of how strongly they felt about that issue, the issue of apartheid and the issue of black nations being excluded from the Games. Mm. And perhaps not enough credit has been paid to the individual athletes who sacrificed their chance of Olympic gold, immortality, uh, sometimes in some cases uh, winning successive golds.
0: Absolutely. Those athletes, they sacrificed enormously for the anti-apartheid cause. There's a runner from Kenya, Mike Boyd. He was silver in the 1972 games, and he was favored to come back and win in the 1976 games. He was there. He was at his peak. He was winning races around the world leading up to those games. Other runners from Tanzania, Bayou, there were There were showdowns with the New Zealand top miler at the time, John Walker, that just didn't materialize, and it was their their sacrifice that enabled this walkout, and it's, it's what lends credibility to the threat of a boycott, but ultimately demands someone pay that cost, and arguably it's the fans, it's the athletes who are the losers.
1: Could it be said, do you think, that there's too much emphasis on the Cold War geopolitics, whereas the anti-South African racist laws mm-hmm. is, a, is perhaps more of an achievement? Mm. And the backing of the Soviets for the anti-apartheid movement is perhaps one of the better outcomes of the Cold War?
0: I couldn't agree more. The position that the Soviets took in the 1968 and 1972 games to back the African-led boycott of those games against racist regimes in southern Africa was a principled stance. And whether that was motivated by larger Cold War strategic political ideas is, uh, in this case, perhaps a, a good example of the ends justifying the means.
1: You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org.